There are one or two gentlemen in this life who, if I were to meet them, they would totally turn me into a fanboy. A seance with David Bowie? You bet. Surfing with Kelly Slater? Sign me up. Bongo Jam with Matthew McConaughey? All right, all right, all right. Sounds like a blast. But if there's one person who makes my man crush a meter go through the roof, it's our guest on today's podcast. Hit it! His name is Jason Freed, and for some, he's the co-founder of the software company Basecamp. For others, he's an author and a commentator. But for me, well, he put words to the things I've always thought when it comes to the way we work. Stuff like, maybe it's not cool to work 80 hours a week, or endless days of meetings after meetings kind of suck, and maybe we should fix that. Or maybe we pay attention to the wrong things when we hire people, and we should try doing it differently. Anyway, Jason put those words and many others into a book that he called, It Doesn't Have to Be This Crazy at Work. Amen. He wrote that four years ago, and at the time, his idea seemed a little fringe for some. But today, post-pandemic, he might seem more like a Nostradamus. And that, dear listener, is well worth a victory lap on our show. Jason Freed joins us at The Nexus. It felt like at the time, 2018 the book came out, what you were writing was somewhat iconoclastic, even for tech companies who have different ways of working than perhaps legacy companies to some degree. Now, flash forward, say, two years after a pandemic, all of those people who perhaps maybe have been, you know, your book is charming, but a little bit dismissive, like not for us. They may be reassessing their priorities and thinking you're prescient a little bit. Do you feel that way at all? A lot of things we've been talking about just do make sense. We've been trying them here for 20 years, learning about them and figuring out what works. And... I think more people are beginning to realize that there are different ways of working than the traditional ways of working. Inevitably, over time, more and more people are going to explore that, and sometimes we're going to be forced into it. And not everything fits for everybody, of course, but hopefully there's a few things in there that people can take away from and try out. I'd love to hear from you if you think that how much of this is pandemic-related, how much of this is like people were probably going to get here organically anyway, or perhaps a combination of the two. There's nothing like an accelerant. Had many companies not been forced to try to work remotely, had not been forced to try to change the way they work, had not been forced to consider hiring people they've never seen in person or hiring people from far away, it just would have taken a long time. It's hard for people to change their minds, so I think it would have been a generational shift. But since everyone was forced into doing it, what's great about this sort of moment, I mean, of course, it's a tragic moment, that it's a great moment to bust myths. Myths like, we couldn't do it that way, or we can't work like that, or everyone needs to be in the office, or we can't manage, or how are we gonna get things done if we don't see people working? And all these myths that just had to be shattered because we were forced into a situation we couldn't control. It's a good thing when myths are busted. And you get to see how resilient human beings are and how adaptable we actually are and how flexible we are, and how many of the things that we hold so dear probably don't matter as much as we thought. A lot of companies and employers were having to learn something that you've probably already discovered, and that's the value of trust. Creating an environment of trust where you're like, I'm going to make a choice to trust you that you're doing your work like a professional and hope that as a result, 
you're going to respect the fact that I'm choosing to trust you. It feels like that's where they got. Would that be accurate, do you think? Or is there something more to it that I'm overlooking? That's the big takeaway that you can trust people to do their job well, even if you're not looking over their shoulder all the time. And that frankly, you must trust them to do their job well. Otherwise, it's kind of a crappy environment to live where you're not trusted by your manager, your team lead, or there's an assumption that you can't do your job unless someone else is telling you what to do. And it just became so much harder to literally watch what people were doing that you had no choice but to sort of loosen up a bit and give people more freedom and flexibility with their own time and attention. The first few weeks of being forced to go remote probably are really difficult for a lot of companies who'd never done this before and it was probably chaotic. But you can't judge something new in the first two weeks or three weeks because you don't know how to do it yet. And if you were to say, I'll never get good at this because I'm bad at it right now, that's just not how it works. And you've got to give it some time and you've got to learn how to do it. And working remotely well, something you have to learn how to do. And part of that is trust, is giving people more control of their own time or taking less of it, I would say. If you want to do great work, there needs to be a sense of ease rather than a sense of stress constantly. And I think if you don't trust people, it's all about stress then. I'm curious to know what you think the future holds for those particular kinds of managers, those people who are accustomed to giving directions or uncomfortable when people are out of pocket. It probably depends, right, on the kind of company. I imagine there are companies and there are cultures and there are places where some people want to be told exactly what to do. They don't want to flex any sort of creative muscle. So there'll always be a place for that, I imagine. They're not going to survive if that's probably the method of management, because I think people who are really thoughtful and creative and talented, they want to spread their wings a bit more. They want to be involved in the thinking a bit more than just the doing. And so you got to find the balance, of course. You probably don't want an organization where everyone is just coming up with what they want to do without thinking about the overall strategy or where we're headed. That's probably not a good mix either. But I think companies that have more freedom, but also still a clear direction about where they're headed, that, that's the ideal. And then a manager or team lead who helps guide people and show them where to go, but not tell them how to get there specifically. I think that's the right mix. And I think those companies are going to attract the best people. Otherwise, you're probably going to lose great people to companies who do give people a little bit more flexibility and freedom in their choices during the day. Throughout the book, you do make it clear to the reader your mileage may vary. And also, people have probably pointed out that by virtue of being privately owned and not publicly traded, you can make some choices that other companies may not be able to. What would you say to those people? Well, this is nice, but it can't scale. I can't do it for a company this large, even if I was able to implement it. What would you say to those particular people that it needs to work in a very narrow context? There's a lot of companies where the way they work today just simply doesn't work for them, but they keep doing it. You can ask many companies like, are you constantly delivering things that are late? Are you constantly missing deadlines? Are people constantly working all night? Are people working weekends to get something out the door? And if most people are going, yeah, 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 something isn't working. So it's time to maybe reconsider the way you do some things. And so maybe some of the things that we're doing would be helpful for you. Ultimately, this is about team size and large companies typically have much larger teams than we do. Our teams that work on any feature for either Basecamp or Hey are typically two people. So you have one programmer, one designer who work together. And that's by design. Small teams can only do so much, but they have to make really smart choices about what's important. And they don't get bogged down in having to communicate something to nine different people. So my suggestion in general would be, whatever size company you are, is to have slightly smaller teams and you're actually gonna get more work done faster when you have fewer people working on the work. So that's one thing that scales better because then you can actually have more teams running in parallel and you can actually probably get more done with fewer people this way.
You know, one of the things I took away from your book is the sense that Basecamp, it's pretty flat organizationally. There aren't a lot of managers. There's not a lot of bureaucracy in there. Is that fair to say? It's fair to say, historically, we've been very flat. We've been as small as we possibly can. We've recently introduced a little bit of structure, but the structure is not there to tell people what to do. It's to be supportive. A programmer doesn't report to four other people or five other people. They kind of report to one person, and the team lead is that person. That person might report up one more level, but that's kind of it. The reason I ask is we get exposed to the internal workings of lots of companies, and you see that there's a little bit of resistance around the idea of paying someone to do the same role, even if they're getting better at it, or perhaps with experience, there's some institutional knowledge they're gaining that's going to be hard to replace where they to leave. And yet it feels as though lots of managers or companies can't really justify increasing the pay for a person who does that role and they do it really well. And so they move them, say, up into management. It's like, if I give you this additional responsibility, I can justify a pay increase, even if managing is not what they're good at. I'd be curious to know what you think of that particular habit, if you think it's something that needs to be broken. And if it does, what would you recommend? Yeah, this is really challenging. We struggle with it too. You have, let's say, a team of six programmers and you kind of need someone to lead the group. For a size like that, you don't want someone who's only leading. You want someone who's also doing the work. So you want like a combination hybrid kind of team lead person who's still involved, let's say, in the code, but also has responsibility for choosing a little bit more of the direction and helping people along who are stuck and, and that sort of thing. Now, typically what you would do then is you'd find the most senior person in that group and promote that person to that role. And in some cases that works really well. In other cases, it doesn't work so well. And there's a few reasons why it might not work. One might be that person just doesn't want to do that. But that is like, to your point, the only way to get a pay raise. Other times it doesn't work because they're just not really good managers. That's just not their strength, but people tend to get promoted up into that rank, even if they're not good at it or don't want to do it. Other people then grow into it and really enjoy it. So it, it kind of depends. What we do at Basecamp is we allow people to be at the highest tier of an individual contributor, which is what's called a principal. So we have a principal designer or principal programmer. So for example, I'll take a principal designer here at Basecamp, a, a guy named Scott. Scott's been working here for close to 12 years. He doesn't want to be a manager. He was a manager at a previous job and realized that's not what he wants to do. He leads through seniority and experience and talent, but he's not technically a team lead but he's moved through all the ranks to the highest possible level, which is principal. Now, you could say at that point, he's capped as an individual contributor at the highest possible level. But what we do at Basecamp is we track the industry to get salary ranges, and then we peg our salaries to the top 10% of San Francisco rates. So even though we're not based in San Francisco, we wanna make sure we're paying at the highest possible market rate, and that's what the San Francisco rates are. So we're pegging all of our salaries to the top 10%, which means that in most jobs here, in most years, since salaries are going up, people's salaries continue to go up, even if they're already pegged at the highest level. So they don't need to move into management to continue to get higher pay, as long as the industry continues to value those roles at a higher level. So for example, principal designers and lead designers and senior designers all went up this year significantly because the industry is valuing that talent even more. Now, some people do want to move to the manager track, and so that's also an available option for them. What we don't currently have at Basecamp, though, are dedicated managers who only manage. So everyone who runs a group also does the work. That's a good way to keep an individual contributor still involved, but also give them more responsibility. So it's a, it's a delicate balance and it doesn't work out for everybody. And there's some downsides too, but that's what we've figured out works well for us. 
This has been perhaps a more therapeutic conversation than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> My pleasure. The questions are great. Are you pondering new ways of working for your business? Need to get the word out about it? Well, not to worry. That's what Nexus is here for. For over two decades, we've been supporting clients with industry-leading strategies and solutions. And guess what? We can probably do the same for you. Find us at nexuscommunications.com. That's N-E-X-U-S communications.com. If you like what you heard here on the podcast today, then I encourage you to talk about it. And I mean a lot. And you can start by commenting or liking us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're indulging your podcast in. The Nexus is produced by Alexa Paveo and Mertz Jaffer with editing and sound design by Justin Moy. I'm Chris Nelson. Thanks for listening.